Good morning, good afternoon, good evening. Tom Moran here from Tom's Big Spiders Kick. This one off, we're going to go back to last week's podcast and talk just a bit about the moving situation because I did have somebody chime in with how they moved their collection. Now, Curtis Moo Marlou, I moved at the beginning of December. I moved the terrariums, vivariums, pelodariums first, set them up. And then on the second trip, I packed the animals into deli cups and I put my snake into a pillowcase. I packed the animals in a thermal box with newspaper for padding. It was minus 22 degrees Celsius on the moving day, so I tossed some dollar store hand warmers into the box with the animals. It was a short trip, 10 minutes, so I didn't bother taping the heat packs, which would be a big no-no if the trip was longer. So thanks for chiming in, Curtis. In that instance, obviously only three tarantulas, but in his case, he decided to pack them all up. And then we have another one with Will West. I actually just moved a few weeks ago. My collection is not big with about 15 critters with 10 spiders, two scorpions, two small roach colonies, and a 40-gallon biotank with feeders and cleaners like mealworms, isopods, dubias, etc., I did a lot of thinking on the best way to move them. I only had to move about two miles down the road and all, so not too challenging. I ended up leaving them in their enclosures. I mostly used critter keepers and stacked them in a 30-gallon plastic tote packed tightly and securely. Some went into an 18-gallon tote when we ran out of room. We strapped the totes into the backseat of a car and carefully drove them to the new apartment. No issues, but a stressful process nonetheless. So thank you both Will and Curtis. Will, I... I, I Hear you 100% because this is one of the things I thought about because if we move, it probably won't be all that far away. And I think a lot of them I would leave in the enclosures if possible. It's funny because after I did this podcast, apparently Billy's been sneaking and listening to my podcast, which actually embarrasses the heck out of me for some reason. But the other day we're sitting there and she's telling the kids to be quiet. And I walk out in the room and she was actually listening to the podcast. And we were actually having a discussion afterwards about how we would move them because we've talked about this before, but this one kind of really spurred that. So how would we go about this? Because again, I think it all depends on the number of animals you have, the distance you're going. There's so many variables. For us, it wouldn't be a particularly large distance, but the number of animals and enclosures I have would be ridiculously high. I mean, right now, I think in the tarantula room, there's over 200 animals, I think. I grant a lot of them little tiny slings, but some of them in the big Exoterra containers. So we did do a little talking about it. We started talking about which ones we would probably keep in the enclosures, which ones we would probably set up ahead of time. And that was one of the things, Curtis, that we talked about, which I find interesting that you came to the same conclusion, was would it just be easier to take them out of the enclosures, set up the new enclosures in the new house or wherever it may be, you know, get your shelves up and everything, and then bring them over and put them into the new enclosures nice and fresh. And that was something we talked about with probably some of the arboreals and such. So again, if anybody wants to continue to chime in on this one, I think it's good information. I'll continue to touch on it because I think it's something a lot of us will eventually go through or have gone through. And I think nothing adds more to, you know, stress to a move than having to also move a bunch of animals over. I know when we moved to this house, there was a big issue with the snakes. At that time, I had, I believe, right around 40, just under 40 snakes and we had a situation where we were trying to sell the original house and we had a whole the snake room with one tarantula in it, my brosair, my Jeep or Terry, and the real estate agent came over and they're like, this needs to go immediately. And it, it, I found it offensive at first. Like, there's just a moment where you're like, wait a minute, these are my pets. But then you realize most people don't want to come into a house and see a room full of snakes. It's going to send the wrong vibe, apparently. I don't know. So we had to get them all out of there. So I ended up moving them to my father's house that was about eh, 30 miles away, not even. Took several trips. It was very stressful at the time. So I have gone through this with the snakes. We've never had to really move all of the tarantulas. When I moved 
removed my G Porteri. I basically took, if I remember correctly, I took her, put her in like a 16 ounce deli cup and brought that with us and moved her enclosure over. And at that time, it was just a sterilite box. It was nothing major, but it was a very easy move as far as the tarantula was concerned. It was all the snakes and the pillowcases and all that stuff. So thank you so much, Curtis and Will, for chiming in on this one. I, th- I Again, I was reluctant to cover this topic only because... I don't like talking about stuff that I don't have my own personal experience in. So, again, I kind of held off. But, again, I have given it some thought. It would be something we will probably be looking to do in the future. So I, I can tell you kind of how I would do it. And, 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 again, I was hoping people would chime in with their own experiences. So that was great. So moving on, I did ask if people had any topics they wanted me to cover to post on Facebook. And Amanda and Adam Myers posted a topic that you don't hear about. And what I would absolutely love some input on is how do you know when your tarantula is mature, male and female? Not all males have hooks and not all are dimorphic. How do you know that their molt is the ultimate molt? We hear a lot of about slings and very seldom do we hear about the other end of their life. Just an idea for a topic or question that isn't touched on much. And that's a great one, guys. And it's one that I, I think I handle a lot individually. I just was emailed recently by somebody who thought they had purchased an adult female or a juvenile, I guess it was supposed to be a young adult female, Salmapius Armenia. And he's like, I don't think I'm going to have some worries that this isn't a female. And he sent me a picture of it and it was a mature male. Now to me, it was immediately, I opened, I saw the picture and I'm like, oh, mature male. But then I remember back in the days when I didn't recognize the difference between mature males and females. And again, there's a lot of, one of the reasons why I've kind of, I haven't covered this topic is because there's, again, a million different variables that you can have. It depends on the species. It depends on, you know, your ability level as far as to recognize certain things. Because a lot of people will come on and they'll tell you like, oh yeah, they're sexually dimorphic. And they'll point to these little details that you really have to have a discriminate eye to pick up on. So it's, it's an interesting topic, but again, one that isn't covered a lot at all. And the other aspect of it, which I found it's come into play recently with a lot of people that have been contacting me for breeding advice. And again, let me make it very clear. I am not an expert breeder by any stretch of the imagination. I want to make that very clear because I think a lot of people assume I have all this information on them and I'll just say, no, I've never bred these guys. Or, uh, you know, I have some notes, but they're the same notes you're going to find if you look it up and, you know, do some research on arachnoboard. I've, I've bred a handful of species. I have a bunch of breeding projects going now that are going okay, I guess. I've tried to introduce uh, my female Harpactera pulcropes to a male that a buddy of Charles gave me uh, a couple months ago. First time she did it, I knew she was too fat and probably in pre-molt, but we tried. They immediately paired and then she molted out. Now the guy's being really skittish, doesn't want to approach her. So I am no expert at breeding. I want to make that very clear and I'm still learning, but there are some things I picked up on talking to breeders and doing research that I think are important. And some have to do with the size of the female. So anyway, how, how to approach this one? A, sexing. The the big thing that I find and I get a lot of and I'm not good at it and I will admit it freely here is people will send me pictures of the ventral side of their tarantulas, you know, the underneath of their tarantulas. A lot of times they're blurry and they'll go, hey, can you please tell me what sex this is? I am terrible at ventral sexing. I joke sometimes that, you know, I told Billy this story the other day that somebody approached me and I tried to sprinkle some of my humor and they said, hey, could you tell Tell me, is this a male or a female? And I, it was, I had no idea. I had no idea. So I thought I was being funny and I, I emailed them back. I said, well, I'm 50% sure it's a female. I think I've told this story before and they were all excited. Oh my God, it's a female. I'm like, 
oh, crud, you missed the joke. I, I really don't know. So full disclosure, I'm not good at ventral sexing. And quite frankly, I've noticed a lot of people that say they're good at ventral sexing and then they get it wrong. So for example, years ago, I posted up a picture of, I think it was my Lasiadora Itabune, if I'm not mistaken. And I thought it looked female. Again, I was still trying to get the hang of the ventral thing, I, the ventral sexing thing. I was not good at sexing. And a bunch of people said male. A couple people came in and said male. And it ended up being a lady. And, and this happens a lot. And I've talked to other people. They're like, yeah, somebody told me they thought for sure it was a girl and it's a male. Ventral sexing, again, I'm sure there are people out there that are probably much better at it than me. I just don't find it a very reliable way to sex a tarantula. If you're going to sex a tarantula out, your best way is to get a molt. You can sex a lot of them very young. Like I know people that sex them out in an inch and a half, uh, even an inch. I've seen them sexed out an inch and a quarter, although that's pushing it with some species, I think. But you use a microscope to do it and you have to know what you're looking for. So I think a lot of people hop on, they get their microscope, they get their, you know, they find a molt from their little sling that they think they're going to be able to sex, they throw it on the microscope and they immediately go, what the heck am I looking at? Because the skin, the parts that you're looking for can be very underdeveloped at that point. The actual skin is translucent, sometimes almost transparent, so it can be very difficult to see what you're looking at. So I, I think for me, I usually wait a little bit later and people are surprised by this. I don't go nuts sexing my tarantulas. I know a lot of people are immediately... Like, as soon as they can get a molt, they're on it. If they get a molt an inch and a half and they think they can sex it, they're trying to sex it, I just kind of let them go. Every once in a while, I'll pull out a molt and I just do it for practice, but I'm not really that concerned with it. But for people that are looking to breed, for people that are really curious as to what they got, for people that I've had situations where people are like, you know what, I bought this sling, but somebody's offering a sex female right now, I'd kind of like to sex this sling and find out because if it's a female, I don't want to buy this one. If it's a male, I definitely want to buy this female. Maybe I can do some breeding. I totally understand that. For me, I just don't rush to do it. But your best way of sexing is to look for that spermatheca, that female part. That's the part that holds the male sperm on the in the female. And what it usually presents as is a little flap. It can have little bulbs or horns coming off of it. But you're looking for that little flap there, the spermatheca, the thing that holds the sperm. What some people will do is they'll, they'll get their molt, they'll spread it out, and they'll see the epigastric furrow, that spot that both the males and females have. Almost looks like a little lip sometimes. And they'll go, oh, it's a girl. And that's not really what you're looking for. You want to find that little flap. And I will say I have, I'm decent at look at sexing molts from pictures, but sometimes I can't get a good look. Like you really have to blow it up and try to see if you can find that spermatheca. I've had species before that it's so tiny that what I do is I get in there with a little toothpick or a little piece of paper and try to get it under the flap to see it. Cause sometimes it all blends in, especially if the, the trick with the Getting the, the molts ready to sex is you soak them. Some people do it in soapy water. I just put them in warm water. And then what I usually do is spread them out. And sometimes that water makes things difficult to see. So what I usually do is take a Q-tip and kind of dry up some of the water around that area between the book lungs so that I can see the parts that I need to see. But again, you're looking for the flap. And that's the big thing I can tell people. If you're if you're doing this, go in there. If you have a microscope, it's uh, even easier sometimes on a microscope. You put it on the microscope, take that toothpick, put it under there, and you can kind of find the flap. And again, some species develop later than others. Some develop earlier than others. One of the best situations I ever had, which was nice to kind of learn the whole sexing process, is I had two identically sized 
T. Sturmey that molted right around the same time, and I was able to look at both molts, and I believe they're about three and a half inches at the time, and I was able to see the developed female parts, and I was able to see the lack thereof on the male, which was great because I had that one for comparison. So if you can ever see a male or female, or if you're ever confused and you're not sure what you're looking for, I would go online and search up. There are actually sketches and drawings of spermatheca from uh, many, many different species that can really be useful in identifying the sex of your tarantula. And then it's also important to remember that some males have what are called accessory organs that help facilitate. Well, we're still trying to figure it out, but it helps facilitate the whole process of putting the sperm on the webs or whatever. But unfortunately, these accessory organs on some species can be larger than others, and you can get a false positive as a female. And I've seen that before too. And I actually was responsible once a while back, somebody asked me to sex something for them. I looked at it. I saw the little tabs. I was like, oh, yep, that's a lady. And then later on realized I was probably completely wrong. I was probably looking at the accessory organ. So if that individual is listening to this and you, it turned out to be a male, I apologize. But most of the species, it's small enough that the females are going to be pronounced that spermatheca is really going to be something that you can see. It'll stand out. And then you know that you have a lady as opposed to a male. So personally, if you're trying to learn how to do the whole sexing thing, the best way to go about it is to check out pictures online, look at your stuff, throw it under a microscope, throw it under a magnifying glass. I've used those before. And then reach out to somebody that knows better to maybe get a second opinion on it. Now, for males, it can be a little bit different because you're you're not looking for a specific part. You're looking for the absence of those parts. And what will happen is a lot of people will hold out hope. They'll look at the molt. They'll go, I don't see any of the lady parts. I don't see the spermatheca. And then they hold out hope that maybe, just maybe, they'll develop later. I've done this before myself where the species where I'm like, or specimen, that I try to sex out. I don't see the spermatheca. I start hoping it develops later. And no, it turns out to be a male. So anyway, you're looking for the lack of those parts. If you see a female, and the other trick, again, is if you have a male, you're not seeing those parts, look up online. Arachnoboards is a huge source of information, a great source of information as far as trying to find some information on sexing or examples of what to look for. If you go on there, a lot of times you'll find a species that you're looking for and you'll find a photo of exactly what you want to see if it's a female and you can use those for comparisons. That's what I do. That's what I did when I was getting into it. I would look up, hey, I have a B. Voggins here. Is this a male or a female? I would kind of look at it under the microscope. I'd get a guess and then I'd go over to Arachnoboards. I'd search up bivagin sexing or whatever, try to find a picture of one that everybody seemed to agree was a female, and I could compare the two, which makes it a lot easier. But for males, I personally, the the thing that drives me nuts is we talk about males and we always say hooking out. And the idea behind that is many species of male tarantulas, when they reach sexual maturity, will develop these tibial hooks on the backs of their first set of walking legs. And those are used to kind of hold the female off when they're breeding to kind of protect the male. Unfortunately, many species do not have them. So what I will get from people is they will send me a photo of their tarantula and go, hey, I'm trying to figure out what the sex of this is. And to me, it's like, oh my Lord, that's definitely a mature male. But then I'll say, oh, that's a mature male. And they're like, well, it can't be because it doesn't have those spurs, those tibial hooks. So we should probably stop calling it hooking out and call it bulbing out because what every male will have is the emboli or those boxing gloves at the end of their pedal pump. So those are the male sex organs. That's what they use to inseminate the female. They kind of fold up and when they're breeding, if you watch it, they unfold and they use those to inseminate the female. 
all males have to have those. They, they, that's their sex appendage. So what we should be looking for is those bulbs at the end of the pedipalps. Now, the easiest way to describe it is if on females on the pedipalps, and just in case you're out there going, what in the Lord's name are pedipalps? Those are the two smaller quote unquote legs inside the first set of walking legs that surround the fangs. And they use them for like feeding the little short ones, the little T-Rex arms. Well, on a female, the ends of those look like feet. They look just like the rest of their feet. So if you look at one of their back feet and you look at the pedipalps, if they're the same, that's, you know, what the females will have. On the males, they don't look like that. They're rounded. They're bulbous. If you put a flashlight on, a lot of times you'll see there'll be like a red shiny part of it. That's the difference between the males, the mature males and the females. That's what you should be looking for, those bulbs. And I will tell you, once you see them a couple times, they're blatantly obvious. I can tell the other day I was in the room getting dressed for school. I look over and I just see a flash of one of my tarantulas and I saw the little bulb. I'm like, oh, you little booger, you're a male. So there, that's the thing you want to look for. For people who want to send me photos that they think they have a mature male, please, that's the thing I need to see. I'll get these top-down pictures. And a lot of times the males also, there's a different look to them. They're a lot more skinny, gangly almost. Billy always jokes, she calls them alien face huggers because when they when they go out, when you try to breed them with the females and they go nuts, they kind of scramble all around really quick like the little alien face huggers. But they're definitely, the majority of them are much more leggy and gangly. That's something to look for with the males. Now, as far as sexual dimorphism, this can get tricky because there are people out there that, again, and we mentioned this at the beginning of the podcast, that can look at certain specimens and go, that's a male, just by looking at the coloration, by the tones, by the patterning. So, for example, I did a video where I rehoused my two Pisolotheria ornatas a little while back, maybe six, seven months ago. And I'm not, I've only had a female or not a before this. I was not familiar with the, how to tell the difference between them, but several people hopped right on. They're like, those are two males you got there. And they're right. Uh, So far, one of them's already, the one that I wasn't sure about matured out. It's a male. The other one's probably going to go on its next molt. So they were able to look at the patterning on the back of them and determine because it was darker, I believe, that they were males. And for some species, you can do that. And for some species, you can do that early enough that you can kind of, you don't have to do the sexing using the molt because you can just look at them and tell but that does take practice that does take somebody that knows what they're doing I always point out the example of I posted up a video of my female Pisolotheria metallica several years back and a couple people came on and one of them was just really nice about it but one of them was kind of a jerk and he's like yeah you can keep calling it she all you want that's a male and he described this weird technique he had for looking at the folio on the back of it and a dot on the carapace and blah 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 it's a female I had sexed it out there was no doubt in my mind, so I politely came back and said, well, no, unfortunately, the molt says otherwise, and the guy didn't come back with it, but there are some people that are better than others. Some people, unfortunately, I think will just hop online. They'll see something on arachnid boards about it. They like to go over and feel important and feel like they're experts, and they'll go over to look at your picture on Instagram, whatever, go, yep, by the way, that's a male. So just be careful if you're taking advice for people from people about you know sexing, especially if they're just looking at your tarantula and telling you what it is, if it's not obviously a male or obviously a female, take that with a grain of salt and ask somebody that knows 
But anyway, back to it, sexual dimorphism, there are species that you can tell by looking at the patterns, and I'm not going to get into them all here because, A, I don't know them all. To be completely honest, I know some of the ones I keep. But the trick is, go out if you, if you think you have a species that you might be able to tell earlier than later by looking at just the appearance, look up the species name and sexual dimorphism. And a lot of times you'll pull up on Google some comparison photos. It will show you the difference and what to look for between a male and a female. That's the best way to go about it. And even then, I would say, until you get really good at it, get them all and figure out that way just to be sure. Because a lot of people, unfortunately, I think, use those techniques. They get them wrong. And the next thing you know what, they're advertising their female specimen. I don't know. We'll say peak hemorrhage. That's probably not a good one because they are sexually dimorphic. But they're advertising something as a female that they're trying to sell and come to find out it's not a female. It's a male. They just didn't know how to sex them correctly. So on the topic of sexual dimorphism, a lot of people will point to the size of the specimens. This one isn't a good one, I don't think. And and I'll tell you why. And I kind of made a little list before I got going. But I haven't found that my males necessarily, and people can feel free to jump in. And I'm sure people will say, you know, hey, I had one male that out totally outgrew the female. But I found when I've kept multiples of the same species, they grow about the same pace. There's never ones, I, I haven't had any situations where one was much larger than the other. Sometimes they get ahead on molts or whatnot, but it isn't a very profound difference. I found that the majority of them, for the ones that you could say the males grow more quickly, it's more that they mature more quickly. So for an example, Harpectera polcropes or any of my polcropes, I found that the males tend to mature much more quickly within about a year and a half, two years or so. I've had a couple of 18 months and they're much smaller when they mature. So it isn't that they're outgrowing the females. I think a lot of people picture when you say this, that the male is much bigger than the female specimen because it's growing more quickly. No, I think what ends up happening is the male just matures more quickly. But that's one where there's sexual dimorphism because the males are much smaller than the females, not only a shorter uh, diagonal leg span DLS, but their actual thickness of their body, they're little gangly guys compared to the females that are kind of big and robust and, and kind of girthy. Another specimen off the top of my head or species off the top of my head that fits this one is the Hapalopus species Columbia larges. The males are tiny compared to the female, little gangly, almost look like something you'd find in your basement. And the females, again, are much more chunky and robust. Again, though, I have right now a female and a male that I have from the same sack. It was a sack I produced from my girl, B. Arthur. Love that girl. And the male and female, same leg span overall, just the female is not anywhere near mature yet, and the male is sexually mature. So that's different. I think something we need to differentiate or make sure that people are aware of that the males may mature sooner, but I haven't seen a huge difference in the overall growth rate. They're they're kind of going wrong, right? Neck and neck as far as growth rate. And then the males mature and the female has to keep growing to be sexually mature. So thinking of some species off the top of my head where I kept, you know, a male and a female and they kind of grew at the same rate. Theraphosis sturmi, I had a male and a female. They were always within a molt of each other. The male molted out. He was sexually mature at about nine and a half inches, nine inches or so. And then the female, unfortunately, I lost the female a while back, but she was right around the same size. She molted again. Pamphibedia species Duran, I had a male and a female. Both were right around the same size, looked almost exactly the same until about the five or six inch mark. Then the male ended up molting out. The female molted again. They were about the same size, but I don't believe the female was sexually mature. 
I wouldn't have tried to pair her yet. She was still kind of small for Myctimus cancerides. Same thing. I have a male and a female, both around the same size. Male matured out, female kept growing. And then the M. I kept together. The males and females are all right around the same size, with the exception of the first male that matured out very, very early compared to the other males. He was a little dinky guy, and but still, at the same time, he was about the same size as all the females in that tank. It's just the other ones continued to grow. So I think that's something that doesn't get mentioned a lot. Again, if you've had specimens that you've kept or species of tarantulas you've kept and you've noticed a huge difference in the male's growth rate compared to the females, now I'm not saying one matures faster than the other. I'm talking about the male being much, much larger than the female. I'm sure there's going to be instances of it out there, but I literally walked through my collection earlier to try to remember if there were any of them that I had that this I had experienced this with, and I couldn't find a single one. I do have the Pisolotheria metallicas in the communals, and some are definitely growing much, much, much more quickly than others, but I don't know the sexes of the others yet. So I've had some people come on and go, yep, you got a bunch of males in there. Well, I two of the big ones I've already sexed out as female. So that's not necessarily the case. So something to think about. Again, we're just making this more complicated now to sex your tarantulas because I think a lot of people will get slings. One of them will grow a little more quickly than the other and they're like, oh, there's my male. And that's not necessarily the case. Now we've named a couple species that have, that the males seem to mature about the same size as the females are there, you know, around the same size. The ones that I've had that are, the males are much, much smaller. Again, Harpactera species, I've had the males seem to be much smaller than the females. Hopalopa species, Columbia large. Ipisolotheria subfusca, I have a male, it's the smallest mature Pisolotheria male I have ever had in my life. I was actually shocked when this guy came out and had his emboli. It, it basically, I think he's about three and a half inches long. Now, I've had other mature males that are right along the same size. I've had a P. Smithy. I've had a P. Regalis. Uh, something else, I can't remember. Uh, Hanamavalisamica. They were all around the five and a half, six inch mark. They were just gangly, but they were still about the same leg length as the females. This little guy is tiny. So that one kind of threw me off a bit. And normally they're about the same size. So just things to think about. The males, when you get a male, a lot of times, and I tell people, if you're going to get a mature male for a lot of these species, you're going to know sooner than later with the males because they do usually mature out earlier. And the thought process behind that is that it's to protect against the inbreeding. Now, I know we've there's been a lot written about the fact that tarantula inbreeding with tarantulas doesn't seem to have the same consequences as it does with mammals and reptiles and other animals. But there's always that in the back of your mind, is that really how nature wanted it to happen? And you will notice with a lot of these species that the males will mature out and the females will not be mature yet, which would be a way of protecting that from, from crossbreeding. Because what's going to happen is the males are going to go out and about. The females that were in there, their sisters aren't going to be ready to mate yet. So they're going to go out and find some female from a different sack, from a different bloodline and spread their own bloodline that way without having, you know, little incestuous spider babies with their sisters. So that's something to think about too. And I think it, it crosses my mind sometimes when people talk about, are you afraid they're going to inbreed, especially with the M. communal. I, I wouldn't do it on, I would 
prefer to have nails from different sacks. That's the way I would prefer to do it. In this case, it's something different. There are two different sacks there, so I'm not sure who's a sister, who's a brother, and who's not related whatsoever. But it, that's a situation where it's just different. Normally, I think what happens with people is they would. it just feels icky to mate brothers and sisters, but we do it all the time in the tarantula hobby. A lot of times when we get new species in that we don't have over here, people will buy two that are siblings. They'll get a male and a female, and they'll mate them. I think that's probably happened quite a bit, but... Anyway, back to the sexing. I mean, it's just something to think about why the males would mature out earlier than the females. It seems to me that it would be like a little little biological obstacle to prevent inbreeding. So moving on, the big thing with the male, I, I think with a lot of us, people who have been in the hobby for a while, the mature males are become pretty obvious. When you see a mature male, you know it. But for those who haven't kept for a while and don't necessarily, aren't able to just eyeball it right off the bat or there's some indecision, you'd want to look for those emboli. It, the hooks can be a way to tell, but what I would do is look up and see if that species has hooks. So put in the species name, say, does it have hooks? Another thing to think about, and this is one that tips a lot of people off, and I get a lot of emails that go something like, my adult female blah, 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 just molted, and she's not eating. She's just kind of running around the cage. She's not staying in a burrow anymore. She's very active. That could be a huge clue right there because mature males, basically once they mature, their one purpose in life is to find a female and to mate with her. And what will happen is they will molt, and then they start basically going around the enclosure looking for a way out because they're trying to find a lady. Many of them will stop eating. I've had several mature males that never ate again after that mold, they just kind of waste away. I have others that will eat here and there. So I have a, a male Bumba Kabulka right now that has eaten a handful of times after its ultimate molt. And more often than not, it'll it'll refuse food. Every once in a while, it'll grab something. So those are things to think about because I do get a lot of those emails and I feel terrible, terribly about it because I'll get an email, hey, Tom, my my girl, my Afonapelma calcotis female just molted and now she's really antsy. She won't eat and she just keeps walking around the enclosure. I'm like, oh boy, here we go. Can you send me a photo? And sure enough, it's a mature male. So that, even if you're not thinking about the mature male thing, and I think that happens with some people, they're not it hasn't crossed their mind that this could happen, that's a good indication that you want to kind of get a little close-up of it and see if they have those emboli, see if you have a male there because they will become super antsy. So if you have a spider that you've been keeping and you haven't been in the hobby very long and suddenly it's roaming its enclosure, it's trying to get out, it's you know obviously very unsettled, chances are you might have a male there. Now, the other part of the question is when are the females mature? And this is probably the trickiest part of all because I I think it's kind of like humans where technically you're mature early on, but it's not necessarily the right time to breed, if that makes sense. I get a lot of people that contact me about, you know, they're looking to breed and they'll say, I have my five-inch male and my female is like four inches. I'm going to put them together. So could that work? Yes. And I think people have probably had luck with it. But here's the deal. With the females, you want to kind of get an idea of what their max size is. And you don't want to breed them or try to attempt to breed them too early. That's the only time you should really be worrying about, honestly, whether your female is sexually mature. I'm assuming if you're wondering if your female is sexually mature, you're looking to breed. So I think the trick is find out how big the males are. Find out how big the females supposedly grow to. And you want, I always want a situation where my female is larger than the male. I don't, I feel very uncomfortable putting a smaller female in with a male. I'm not into that. And I think, honestly, in most cases, from what I've experienced, the males are smaller than the females. 
females, even if it, they're, a lot of times they are like the same leg span as the females, but much more gangly. You'll see it like it, it's really profound sometimes. And for some of the species where they're a little more closer in size, you still want a beefy female. So for example, my grandma Stola Polkerpees molted. He's a male. He's a big guy, probably about six inches or so. And I have a female that's about five inches and he kind of dwarfs her. And I'm not going to put them together. Technically, at five inches, could she be ready to reproduce sexually? Yeah, probably. And maybe in the wild, she would have that opportunity. But I want to make sure mine gets a little bit larger. I, I always want a situation where the female is at least as large, if not larger than the male. So as far as female, I've, I've gotten this question, or I received this question quite a bit. Like, when do I know my female is sexually mature? It depends on the species. And I, again, we could go through a whole bunch of different ones and not cover them all. The trick is I would look at breeding reports and find out how big the females were that people had success with. So for example, if I'm trying to breed my Rocky Palma Smithy. I would go on, look at breeding reports, and read specifically things like I paired my six inch Rocky Palma Smithy. I paired my five and a half inch Rocky Palma Smithy female. Find out what size it is. That should give you a good indication. But I do not, I, I, I'm not a fan of dropping in, you know, smaller, possibly just barely mature females in with larger, beefier males. That just seems to be a recipe for disaster. Again, it, it doesn't always go, it, it doesn't usually go poorly, but I want to make sure that if somebody's, if there's going to be a scuffle and somebody's going to get hurt, as much as I hate to say it, I'd rather it be the boy than the girl in that situation. So as far as sexing is concerned, I do feel like it's an, uh, an important part of the hobby. It's a fun part of the hobby, but it's something that takes a lot of practice. So for those of you who are looking for information on how to sex or, you know, the best way to go about it is to practice. I used to do a thing where I'd go on arachnoboards and look at some of the pictures and try to figure, it was kind of like a guessing game. I'd go on and go, all right, I think that's a female because of this right here. And I'd kind of go on the board, you know, touch where the spermatheca was, and then I'd scroll down and look at the responses. And I'll tell you, it took a little while because sometimes they go, I think that's a female. And I'd scroll down, it's male, male, male. So do some practicing when you have a specific species that you're looking to sex. Again, Google's your best friend. Jump online, look at some pictures. A lot of times you can find the sexual dimorphism, the, the details about their sexual dimorphism when it involves, you know, color especially or patterning. That can be helpful. If you know you have one that you plan on sexing, do the research ahead of time. Go through, save some photos. I go through, I like the save photos, throw them up on Photoshop so I can blow them up and then look for details or whatever. So I'm going to find, I don't know, T. Voggins spermatheca. I'm going to pull that one up and look at it and have it ready so that when my tarantula molts, hopefully I can grab that molt out and get a good look at it. Now, heads up with the molts. Those can be difficult because when people talk about them chewing up the molts, they're not really eating the molts. What happens is the tarantulas lose a lot of moisture during the molting process. So what they do is they roll that molt up and they suck all the extra moisture out of it. They don't want to waste anything. They're dehydrated after the molting process. So unfortunately, they will tear up that abdomen area because that's where a lot of the moisture is. So it can be difficult to get get one to sex. I don't personally like to pull out molts when the guys are fresh. I, I like to leave them alone. They've just gone through all that stress. I don't want to harass them. If you can wait a day or so so they can harden up a little bit, that's probably your best bet. But don't harass the spider too much trying to get the molt out. Unfortunately, though, if you really want to sex them, the best time is to grab it early on because more often than not, they tend to 
scrunch them all up to suck the moisture out and it completely kills and destroys the area that you need to see in order to sex them. I get a lot of people sending photos where their molts that have obviously been chewed and that whole area is missing and there's nothing you can really do there. But my again, my thing is I just kind of let them grow and when I get a mature male, I get, sometimes I pull ones out. Like the other day I did a formictopus and I was pretty sure it, it was a female, but I just took it out to look at it and just kind of have a comparison. I kind of do it for fun sometimes, but I'm not really obsessive over figuring out whether I got males or females. But for some people, they really want to know and especially we talk about the situations where you've got it you can possibly pick up a sex female you've got a sling that you've been growing up and you're thinking it's a male you want to sex it out totally understood so hopefully that helps guys i again it's tough to do i'm thinking i'm picturing all this stuff in my head when i'm doing this podcast and this is one of the ones that would probably make a good video as well so i could show examples of all this stuff because it's one thing to hear somebody talk about it it's another thing to actually see the photos and this is a situation where photos and having visuals really helps but again you can go search some of this stuff up and get some there's some excellent tutorials out there that help you sex them i've done a couple they're not great they're okay but there's some really good ones out there that really break down all the parts the anatomy and show you exactly what to look for and you want to study that stuff again it's it's a fun part of the hobby it's one of those parts again we talk about you know getting your different belts we compare it to martial arts in the hobby one of the things that makes people feel very proud like they're graduating into that black belt level is being able to you know accurately sex out their tarantulas i do think it's an important part of the hobby it can be a lot of fun as well all right moving on to our last mini topic here i've had some people ask me about my Fermingo chylus arborocola that I talked a while back about how my it used to be Borneo Black. I actually managed to get the name wrong twice on this one. This is a new record for me, and thankfully somebody came and corrected me. I felt like a doofus. But anyway, my P. Arborcola was very, very ill, unresponsive. It was one of the weirdest things I've ever seen. It didn't look like dehydration because legs weren't curled in, and it did have access to water, but you never know. I'm thinking maybe bacterial infection or something of that nature. But anyway, I found it almost completely unresponsive. I put it in one of the tarantula ICUs, which I normally don't I don't think they're very good. It's kind of like just making us feel better, like we're doing some, hey, take my tarantula out of its home where it's comfortable in and stick it in this you know environment with wet paper towels or whatever. This will help. But I was worried about the dehydration part. I wanted to make sure it was hydrated, and it allowed me to keep an eye on it. And again, I talked about how for a couple months it was – really rough shape. It could barely move. It would twitch when it would go to move. And it didn't look like the DKS symptoms that I've seen before. It was different. DKS was, it it was like trying to walk in jittery and kind of all fluttery. This was just like, almost like it was completely tapped out with strength. Like it would reach out its leg to go to walk and the leg would completely be shaking. It would barely move. Well, it started to mysteriously get better. Again, I'd love to take credit for this. This is one of those things I turn to billions. Like I'd love to go around and look at my great veterinary background here. It's totally saved my tarantula's life, but I really didn't do anything. It just came around. I guess the ICU worked or maybe it was just, uh, who knows? But anyway, people have been asking me for you know how it was doing because I have had situations where I reported on spiders being ill before. They look like they're going to turn around and do better, and then they don't. In this case, it's eating like a pig. I do have it in a more of a terrestrial setup. What happened is I took the paper towels out. I put some cocoa fiber in the bottom, moist cocoa fiber. I put a hide in there, some sphagnum moss. It's more of a terrestrial setup, but again, this one was living.
moving more fossorially before it came out and got sick. So I just wanted a situation where I could keep a close eye on it. And if I had put it into the arboreal setup and it wasn't yet healthy, I was afraid we're going to have a situation where I was going to find it unresponsive again. So anyway, it's doing great. I fed it the other day. It came flying out, grabbed a cricket, went back into its hide. So it will be getting rehoused soon. And I'll be doing a video where I discuss this. This is one of those situations where Billy, when it was really sick, Billy's like, are you going to film it? And I hate filming sick spiders. It just makes me so sad. Years ago, or a couple years ago, my Theraphosa stermy female molted and she was starting to, it, it was sign, it just it signs that something was wrong. She was lethargic long after I would expect her to be kind of up and mobile after the molt. And I took some video of her and I was hoping she would pull out of it and then she died. And it's like, I didn't even want to look at the video again. So I have a hard time with that. But this is one of those situations where it would have been nice to have because I would have had some footage of what she was acting like beforehand so people could see exactly what I was talking about and not just have me describe it. And then I would have footage of her getting better and then hopefully footage of her being put into her new, what'll be a bioactive enclosure home and hopefully she continues to grow and do well. So anybody asking that was asking about that, she is doing great. She's looking much, much better. She's very, she's fast, responsive, should be an interesting rehousing because she's definitely got her strength back. The good news is it's, she hasn't dug, so it'll be a matter of just pulling the cork bark out, cupping her and putting her into the new enclosure. But I will definitely let people know when that one's up. So those that are interested in going over and catching the video version of it, will be able to see that, yep, she's doing great and hopefully continues to eat, molt, and we get away from this scary episode and I end up with a healthy spider that doesn't give me any more health scares. And finally, one more thing I want to cover, and I just thought this was one of the coolest things I've had happen since doing the Thomas Big Spider stuff. My buddy Garrees shot me a Facebook message last week and let me know that somebody that was getting interviewed on the BBC about getting over her fear of tarantulas, Vanessa Woods, I believe is her name, a keeper that was honestly was representing the hobby beautifully. She was very articulate. She was talking about how she came into keeping tarantulas because she was so afraid of them and tried to do the immersion therapy, which we have talked about before, where you kind of surround yourself with them. And anyway, on BBC News mentioned myself as one of the people she watched, I believe Gar Rees was on there, Mark's tarantulas, Alan Hicken, who is the Spider-Man, which is awesome because three great guys that I actually talked to quite a bit over the years. It was so cool to be included with them and to hear my name dropped on the BBC. I, I don't usually get like excited about this kind of stuff, but it was just the coolest thing for me. And it was, again, Vanessa did such a wonderful job because I actually was like, what is, I couldn't, I still haven't found the whole clip. It was sent to me as kind of a little portion of the actual clip when she was on it. And I would love to see the whole interview because I was enjoying it. Besides my name dropping, it was just a cool interview to begin with. And they did a little feature on her that's on the website site that you can see where she talks about some of her specimens and everything, but just really articulate. And I just love the way she explains it because she's so calm about it and, and so logical about the whole thing and how, you know, she got into them and now recognizes them as really cool animals and is fascinated by them. So I don't know if she listens to the podcast. Hopefully she does. Vanessa, if you listen to this, thank you so much. That was excellent. I got to reach out and face, uh, and I think I got to run Instagram and say hello because that was just one of the coolest things ever because I do this Tom's Big Spider stuff. And for me, I'm in my own little world in my living room talking to myself on a computer. It, it there's little moments like this that merely make me kind of realize 
how many people I reach, which is kind of really humbling to say the least. So really cool situation. I, I want to ask for permission. I don't know if I can just put that video up, but I want to kind of post it up there because I just thought it was really cool. I showed Billy, I showed my kids. That was really cool. My mom, who the running joke is my mom is deathly afraid of tarantulas. She has always supported me in everything I've ever done with the artwork and writing and whatever it may be, but she's yet to watch any of my tarantula videos because she's terrified of tarantulas. And I'm like, yeah, mom, here's a woman that went on and was talking about how she watched, you know, some of my videos helped her get over her fear. So I kind of got to give her a hard time about that. But it was just a really cool thing. And one of those ones where I was having kind of a rough week trying to get everything done. And it reminded me of, you know, people are actually listening to what I'm doing and, and they actually respect it and appreciate it. And I'm helping. So that was a really cool situation. So anyway, that will about do it for this one. A little shorter than normal, but Again, I want to point out, somebody emailed me and was like, man, I really wish you'd do hour-long ones. When I planned on doing these, when I first started, I, my goal was for like 20 minutes to 30 minutes, and then people said they liked the longer ones, so I went on longer, and like, I, I remember one guy was like, I have a 45-minute minute drive, so if you could hit 45 minutes, so sadly, I actually have that in the back of my mind sometimes. When I don't hit 45 minutes, it's like, oh, this poor guy's going to have to listen to the radio for a little while, but... Anyway, all joking aside, thanks so much for listening. As always, you can find me on thomasbigspiders.com. You can find me on YouTube, doing a lot of fun stuff over there. That'll do it for this episode. We will catch you guys all next time.